right. Well, the Rangers uh, just won the World Series. Yes, yes. That was a monumental day. In fact, in my household, um, I mean, it's like marriage and birth of my kids and the Rangers winning the World Series is basically the order it goes in right there. Uh, no, it's, uh, it was exciting. And I was looking up some information about it. There were, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but there were 48, 48 players that, that got on the field this year for the Rangers. Uh, there were... How many players on the field at the end of the, the game when they won the World Series? Anybody know? You baseball players know. How many players were actually on the field when the final out was recorded? Nine. Nine. That's how many players are on the field uh, during the, the, the final or during a defensive inning. And that was the final inning for the Rangers. Nine players. Now, those nine players were the players that were most often on the field. That you had your, your shortstop, your second base, your third base. You had all your main position players out there. Then you had a pitcher on the pitcher's mound as well. Now, those nine players got the final three outs of the ball game to win the World Series for the Rangers. But my question is, were those nine players the only ones responsible for the Rangers being able to win the World Series? No, of course not, right? 48 different guys saw the field at some point in time this year for the Rangers. One of the guys that comes to mind so often for me is, uh, is the guy Austin Hedges. If you were a fan and, and watching down the stretch, the most you saw Austin Hedges was not on the field, but you saw him in the dugout on the railing with the biggest smile ever on his face cheering on his team. And if you talk to the, the Rangers players, Hedges, though he didn't get a whole lot of playing time on the field, Hedges was vital to the success of the team. Because Hedges was there as a guy who, as a, a, an experienced and veteran catcher in the league, would talk to the pitchers in between innings and talk to the catchers and give some insight about what he was seeing. And then he was also just a team player. He was a guy that was always encouraging and uplifting and high energy and celebrating what was going on on the field. But my point in, in all of this is, is this. There were nine guys on the field in the end, but it wasn't just nine guys that got the job done. It was everybody working together as a team participating in this to get the job done. Y'all, what we're talking about when we see these parents up here dedicating their children, when, when we think about raising our kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as I mentioned time and time again during those dedications, that, it's hard to do that. And yet the, the great reality in what we have in the church is that God has provided the church to partner with parents and doing everything we can to put those kids in the way of God's grace. So just like it wasn't just nine people winning the World Series, this process of raising our kids to follow after Jesus is not just mom and dad. It's not just grandma and grandpa. It's not just an aunt and uncle. It's not just a godparent. It's the church working together towards that end. So that's what I want us to focus on this morning. If you'll take your Bibles and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I hope from Deuteronomy chapter 6 to show us that it takes the church to do what we're talking about here. To see young men and young women grow up to love Jesus more than anything else. Deuteronomy 6, the passage is probably a familiar one if you've been around the church for any period of time. You've heard this passage. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Beginning in verse 4. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The passage opens up, hear, O Israel. It's the, the passage is known as the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word, which means hear. It's the first word in this text. This is a, a major passage in the Jewish community, and it has been forever, ever since it was first given. This is one uh, Bible dictionary called it the most fundamental expression of the Jewish faith. This passage, these verses, is, uh, they're, they're taught to Jewish children in Orthodox homes from the, the earliest ages. As soon as they are able to speak, this is what the parents are teaching them to rehearse on a regular daily basis. In fact, it's recited by religious Jews three times every day. It's read in the synagogue every single Sabbath gathering. Hero Israel. And again, it's the most fundamental expression of the Jewish faith because of what it goes on to say. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is what? One. The Lord is one. Now, there have been some who are anti-Trinitarian in their theology, meaning they don't believe that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so they will point to a verse like this one, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they'll say, see, the Lord is not a Trinitarian God. He is one. He's Unitarian. So there is no Father, Son, or Holy Spirit division. The problem is contextually, that's not what Moses was talking about. When Moses said, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, what is Israel getting ready to do at this point in their history? Well, if you're familiar with it, maybe you're not, the, the, the task facing them was entering into and taking the promised land. Those that were inhabiting the promised land at this time were a, a people of many false gods. And so as they were getting ready to enter the land to dispossess those that were in the land so that God could give them the promised land, they were going to be around these nations that worship many different false gods. And so what Moses was saying here in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 was the Lord is an exclusive God, that the Lord is God alone. There are no other gods besides Yahweh. Now as the Bible continues to develop and as we talked about last week, that God, Yahweh, is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So here the, the point is not to stress that he is a Unitarian God, but that he is an exclusive God, that he is different from the gods of all these other nations. And Israel was to follow him and him alone. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then he goes on and he says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Again, a familiar verse. Jesus picked up on this himself, right? Jesus was asked, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the first and greatest commandment is this. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. If God is the only true God, here was your, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If that's true, then it only follows that we would love him and be devoted to him with everything that we are. And that's what verse 5 is talking about. That, that we need a full devotion to God with everything in our being, the heart and the soul. That's the whole person, the inner self. This is emotion. This is will. This is intellect. All of it working in concert to love God in totality. That because of who God is, our response is to love him with all that we are, our heart, our soul, and also our might. 
That word might is actually an adverb in the text. It means mightily or uh, exceedingly or greatly. It's describing the, the measure to which we should love God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. We shall love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. And then he goes on, he says, in these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Again, contextually, Moses was delivering the law to the Israelites. So he was telling them the, the law, and the law was the, the wishes of Yahweh for how Israel should, should live their lives in relationship with him. And so he was telling them, love the Lord your God with everything that you are, and what would that look like? How will I do that? Well, in this context in the Old Testament, it was to follow the law of Yahweh. This law that I'm commanding you today, these words that I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. What does that mean, on your heart? Well, it's been said that the, the longest distance in a, a believer's life are the 18 inches between the brain and the heart. In other words, we can understand truths about God, but that does not mean that we've internalized truths about God. We can intellectually assent to things about God to say, yes, this is true about him, but it's not really made a difference in our lives until it's traveled and been internalized as part of our full devotion of our whole selves. So Moses is saying, these things should be on your heart. If you've been following along with our daily Bible reading, we just came out of the book of Jeremiah not long ago. We're now in Ezekiel, but in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, in the new covenant, God is after our hearts as well. And as believers, we are experiencing the, the beginnings of, not the full fulfillment of, the, but the beginnings of the new covenant through a relationship with Jesus. But listen to what Jeremiah the prophet says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant. That's what we're talking about here in Deuteronomy 6. So this covenant is different. My covenant that they broke, he goes on to say, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Here's the new covenant. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This internalization of this covenant relationship with God. And so that's what you and I get to enjoy now. The law, these words that I command you today should be on your heart. It's true for us as well. There's an exclusivity of God that produces a full devotion of God that looks like an internalization of his word in our lives, an imprint of his word in our lives that impacts the way that we live. Why all this talk about this as we're talking about raising up a future generation of following Jesus? Well, Jesus called Deuteronomy 6.5 the greatest and first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Here's the thing, church. If we hope to be godly parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles, or if we hope to partner with them in raising up the next generation of Christ followers, this has to be the first and greatest commandment in our lives as well. We can't expect a devotion in our kids that we don't first possess ourselves. Our first point this morning is this. Model what true discipleship looks like. Model what true discipleship looks like. You can't pass on what you don't possess. You can't convey what you don't cultivate. And this is not just aimed at those that have kids at home. This is not just aimed at our parents. If you're out here and you're an empty nester or you don't have kids yet or you're a single, listen, I want you to know that this is applying to you as well. That we need everybody in the church as parents to be modeling what true discipleship looks like. 
When I think about my kids in this church, I want them to look up to other men and women in the church who love Jesus more than they love anything else. And I want them to be impacted by them and not just know that, hey, mom and dad love Jesus a lot, but I want them to know that everybody in this church loves Jesus wholeheartedly. And so church, this is an important task. When you think of all of those kiddos over there, which we average between 50 to 60 kiddos over in our kids' ministry, all of them, we we are praying and hoping and trusting and pleading with God that they would come to know Christ. And does that involve their parents and their primary guardians? Yes, it does, but it doesn't stop there. It involves the whole church in that process too. So we need to be modeling what true discipleship looks like. To put it another way, a passion for Christ is better caught than taught. If they don't see in you what you are proclaiming, what you are teaching, they're going to eventually understand that there's a disconnect. They're going to say, yeah, mom and dad might tell me how much they love Jesus and and they may take me to church and, and everything else like that, but I just don't see it. Model what true discipleship looks like. Uh, My son, Joshua, who's 14, is a diehard Rangers fan, and there's a reason for that. It's because if you're not, you don't get to live in my house. (laughs) I joke partially. No, but since he was a little boy, he's grown up watching the Rangers with me. He's grown up talking about the Rangers with me. He knew stats before he knew his multiplication tables, right? I mean, he knew the roster, and he, he understood them, and he, he's followed them, and so he's gotten a passion for this team, and he caught that passion from his dad. That's some of what we need, but to a much greater degree when it comes to Christ. Our kids need to see, not just again in mom and dad, but in all of us, a passion for Jesus. They need to think about the adults in this church differently than they think about the adults on the sidelines at their baseball games. They need to know that we're after imparting something better than their coaches, than their instructors, than their teachers, than their professors eventually. They need to see in us a full devotion to Christ. Our kids need to see us love Jesus more than them. Let me encourage you, if you are a parent here, you need to be communicating that to your kids. They need to know and hear from you, I love Jesus more than I love you. Because that needs to be true. They need to understand that you love them, yes, but they need to understand that your affection for Christ is even that much greater. Our kids need to give, see us give our best to Jesus and not just our leftovers to Jesus. And they need to see us prioritize Jesus above all other relationships. This is so important, y'all. You guys set the tone for the next generation. How you approach Christ, how you approach your relationship with him, how you think about the church, how you fill up your calendar. For some of you, your calendar teaches your kids more about what you think of Jesus than you might be comfortable with. Let me talk to you if you've got kids at home right now. How often do they see you opening up God's word? How often do they see you or hear you pray? Do they detect a difference between the words that come out of your mouth and the words that they hear come out of the mouths of the other adults in their lives? 
do they see you react differently to trials and suffering than the world does? Do they see you prioritize the church? Church, if, if our kiddos grow up watching us give God our leftovers, don't be surprised when they follow suit. If our kids grow up seeing us prioritize other things over a relationship with Christ, don't be surprised when they do the same. If our kids grow up thinking they're more important to us than God, don't be surprised when they put other relationships and people in front of God later on themselves. What do we want for those 50 or 60 kids over there? And again, I'm appealing to more than just the moms and dads in the room. I pray and I hope that all of us would think about those 50 and 60 kids over there and think, man, I, I want them to love Jesus. I want them to follow Jesus. What kind of relationship with Christ do we want them to possess? And then the question is, what are they seeing from us? Are we modeling what true discipleship looks like for them? Passion for Christ is better caught than taught. But it also needs to be taught. And that's where we go next in our text in Deuteronomy 6. Focusing on the devotion of the parent and, and the, the, the leader and the adult in their life. But now moving on from this, he now turns to our responsibility with them. And look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently. Period. Stop right there. I know there's more to it. We'll get to the rest of it. But that teach them diligently. One word in the Hebrew. Okay? Teach diligently. It means to repeat over and over and over again. To continually put it before them. Teach them diligently. It's a word that only occurs here in the Hebrew text, but the concept of teaching our children is found throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 9. Deuteronomy 4 verse 9 says this, Only take care and keep your soul diligently. Notice the focus on the teacher before it gets to the teaching. Take care, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Make them known. Teach them. Convey these things to them. Deuteronomy eleven nineteen. You shall teach them to your children. Talking of them when you're sitting down in your house, and when you're walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. That sounds really similar to our text in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But teach them, convey these things. Psalm 78, 4, we will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, the wonders that he has done. Telling, teaching, conveying these things to the next generation. This is a biblical command and a biblical precept. Again, this is why over in our kids' ministry right now, they're not just getting a snack and hearing some fun music and doing a craft. When you pick up your kids after kids' ministry, our heart and our desire is that you can ask them, what did you learn about today? And they're gonna be able to tell you that they learned something biblical today, that they were taught something from the word of God today. In fact, what they're learning over there right now is they're learning about how God used trying circumstances in Joseph's life to bring about the good of his plan for his life. That's what our kids are over there understanding and beginning to learn. And yeah, we package it in a way that's digestible for them. But still, they're going to be taught the scripture every single week that they're over there. Because that's part of our imperative as a church. And that's why it takes the church. We want to partner with, we want to come alongside in teaching the next generation to know Christ. The child that God has entrusted to you was entrusted to you in order that you might teach them the things of the Lord. This is a stewardship that we have. Our children don't ultimately belong to us, but to him. 
He's given them and trusted them to us for a season so that we might teach them about Christ. And yeah, we can't save any of our kids, admittedly. But here's the thing, y'all. We need to provide a target-rich environment for God's grace. Doing everything we can to put them in the way of God's grace to see it work in their lives. Our second point this morning along those lines is this. Teach the next generation to know Christ. Teach the next generation to know Christ. If any of you listened to the briefing, uh, Dr. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, Listen, he's been sounding the alarm for quite a while on the tactics of the far left. Trying to change and, and perpetuate uh, the, the way that our kids think. Because that's what, it, what it's all about for them, right? They're not really after you and me. Why? Because we've grown up and we've already formed our opinions and we've already decided on, on most issues that exist out there. So their efforts aren't targeted at you and me. You know who they're going after, don't you? They're going after those 50 or 60 kids sitting over in that room. And they're doing that through curriculum in schools, and they're doing that through drag queen story hours at public, school li- or public libraries, and they're doing that through the university system. That's where it kind of started, but it's, be not, not fooled. It's trickled all the way down into the elementary schools now. And if, if we're going to bury our heads in the sand and think that bringing our kids to church and making sure that they're just entertained and quiet while mom and dad get to learn about Jesus, then we're going to lose. We have to be going after them with what matters for eternity, which is the gospel. And again, this is more than just what happens at home. This is the church partnering in this. Teach them diligently. Repeat these things. Again, I want my kids not just hearing that from me, but from all of y'all. I want them to hear about Jesus. I want them to hear when they interact with you about Christ. I want them to see in you a godly man, a godly woman who loves the Lord. I talked about the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Does the New Testament teach us that we need to be doing this? Well, yes, we just hit on this time and time again in our dedications. Ephesians 6, 4, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. This is an imperative. This is a command for us, church, that we are raising our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, Romans 10 doesn't say it explicitly, though it's implicitly here. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then are they going to call on him in whom they have not believed? That's our kids. They need to hear, right? He says, well, how are they going to believe in him who they've never heard of? And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches? So here in Romans 10, we see that even their part of God's plan for the salvation of our kids is that they would hear the gospel on a regular basis, and they would hear the gospel from parents and grandparents and godparents and volunteers within the church. How are some ways that we can teach our kids? What are some tactics that we can take on this? A couple of suggestions along these lines. Uh, first, uh, we do have over in our, our kidsmen building there a family devotional companion to the curriculum that we use on Sunday mornings. So if you want to pick that up, you can take that home and you can use that around the breakfast table or dinner table or wherever it is, and you can study God's word with them and it will complement what they're doing here on Sunday mornings. So that's one way that you can do that. Another way is conversations on the walk to school or the drive to school. You've got that time with your kids. What are you talking about? 
Are you having pointed conversations? Are you talking to them about Jesus? Are you asking them questions about Christ? Conversations around the dinner table. What's taking place there around the dinner table? Something that my family and I have, have been enjoying recently. I don't know where it came from. I think it was a gift. And if you gave it to us, thank you. Uh, but it's a little stack of Bible trivia cards that we have there. And it sounds like the nerdiest thing in the world. But man, my kids love it. They grab it and they, they, they get to go around and they love asking the question. And, and we answer who it was and, and you know, who was the king that came after Solomon. Questions like that, things like that that are in there. That's a way for you to be teaching your kids Conversations that you're tucking them in at night when you put them to bed, right? Is it, is it intentional time with them during those moments that God gives you? An intentional rehearsal of the gospel, making sure they understand the fundamentals of the gospel, something that we do with our kids on a regular basis. If you ask my kids about the gospel and you say, Jesus died on the cross so that, they'll say, so that my sins can be forgiven. And he rose from the dead so that, so that I can live with him forever, I want them to, to have those things ingrained in their mind. Intentional choice of the books that you read to them. Right? I, I trust this. As parents, you're reading to your kids. What are you reading to them? There's good books that are out there. Um, our Kidsmen team can recommend some to you as well. And then this last one, and this is important. The intentional prioritization of the church. The intentional prioritization of the church. Making sure that this is a place that matters for you. And again, I, I, just a lot of those lists, maybe you're sitting there going, okay, well, I'm, I'm not mom and dad. I don't have kids at home, so most of those things don't apply. This last one, intentional prior, prioritization of the church, it does. Because when I bring my kids here and I bring my family here, I don't want them to just see mom and dad here at church. I want them to see in the body of Christ, older brothers and sisters, in the household of God, the family of God, I want them to see these other believers that are here, that are choosing to be here, that are prioritizing this time in this place, saying this matters to me. That's gonna teach them, sometimes louder than it does for just mom and dad. Can I tell you, uh, and try to hold it together through this, this has impacted my family in in an insanely tangible way. Um, Probably two years ago or thereabouts, uh, my oldest came home from youth group one night and that was the night that God opened his eyes and and led him to faith and repentance in Christ. And one of the happiest days in my life, more than the Rangers even, believe it or not. But here's my point in that he came home and was ready to talk about that because of the work of God and three young men at our junior high ministry in California. Jude and Kosi and Lewis. Lewis preached a sermon that night and Josh listened to the sermon and God was working on Josh's heart through that. And then Kosi and Jude led the small group after the sermon where God continued to press in on his heart such that Josh came home and we had a conversation and then he put his faith and trust in Christ as his savior. God used more than mom and dad to impact his life for eternity. And so if you're here this morning and you're going, well, I don't have kids, so this message is not for me, it could not be further from the truth. There are ways for God to use you to impact the lives of those kids that are over there, the kids in our youth ministry for eternity.
God used Lewis and Nkosi and Jude to impact my son so that he would come to faith in Christ. My daughter the same way. It was, it was women that God had brought into her life beyond mom and dad that, that God used to, to open her eyes to, to, to want to have a relationship with Jesus. Every single one of us in this church can model a relationship with Jesus that's going to make those kids as they grow up say, I want to have what they have. And y'all, that's what we want here. For every single person in this church. In some ways, these kids are our kids. Paul writes this in the book of Titus. He says this in Titus chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, and show yourself in all respects a model of good works. Paul is writing to Timothy, showing Timothy what the household of God looks like in action. Older women training the younger women. Older men training the younger men. And yeah, right now, those little girls over there, older ladies in the church, they don't need to be taught about what it looks like to submit to your husbands. They're not in that stage of life. But they need to be taught about how much Jesus loves them. Right? Older men, younger men, students may not be ready to be husbands, but some of you need to invest in these young men to say, hey, look, this is what it looks like to follow Christ. It takes the church. There's different ways to do this, even as you think about this. Maybe you don't have kids at home, so what does that look like for you? Maybe you can volunteer in our kids' ministry. Mark's not here, but he'd be giving a loud amen to that if he was. Volunteer with our students in our youth group that meets on Wednesday nights. We've got small groups that, that take place after the preaching that Pastor Rod does on a weekly basis on Wednesdays. You've got an ability here to talk to these kids, right? Sometimes it's paralyzing to think about how do I talk to a, a little kid? Well, just start. Hey, how are you? What you got there? How many donuts are you wearing on your face this morning? Even things like that will cause them to look at you and go, oh, this is not some scary adult that I don't know. And then the door is open towards modeling Christ for them. Smile at them, right? Some of you guys need to, to just start there. Just start with a smile. There's other ways, too, as we think about this, pray. Right? We talked about this a lot today. Uh, pray for them. Pray for their salvation. That's a huge way to partner in this process. Uh, pray for their parents that they would have opportunities to point them to Christ, that they would be patient, that they would be godly parents. And then this last one, don't be annoyed by them. (laughs) And I was preaching to myself a little bit on that one too. Yeah. These are are, are gifts that God has given to us, church. These kiddos. Stewardship, yeah, primarily of, of, of mom and dad. But as a mom, not as a mom, as a dad, as a mom and dad, as moms and dads, as a dad in, yeah. Let me tell you, I, I want you guys to partner with me in pointing my kids to Jesus. I need it. I need it. They need it. Verse 7, let's unpack the rest of this. You shall teach them diligently to your children. These commands, right? Teach them diligent, re- diligently. Repeat them. And, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. 
You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. I want you to think for a minute of a sponge. You take a dry sponge and you put it in a bowl of water. You squeeze it and let go, and you pull that sponge out of the water. What's in that sponge if you squeeze it? Water. Why? Because the sponge has been saturated by water. Here's what we're after. We're after saturating our kids with biblical truth. And that's what these verses are talking about, that it needs to be everywhere. We need to saturate the lives of those kiddos with what we're talking about here in that second point, teaching them to know Christ. We want to saturate their lives with that. Teach them diligently to your children. Talk about it when you sit down, okay? So when you're at home and you're just residing there, you don't have anywhere to go, talk about Jesus. Talk about the gospel. When you walk by the way, when you're out and about, when you're taking them to school, when you're running errands with them, Talk to them about Christ. Talk to them about the gospel. When you lie down, when you're going to sleep at night or they're going to sleep at night, talk to them about Christ. Talk to them about the gospel. When you rise up in the morning, when you get up to start a new day, talk to them about Christ. Talk to them about the gospel. Saturate their lives with the gospel. Deuteronomy 6, 8, going on, it says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Bind them as a sign on your hand and frontlets between your eyes. This was and still is a practice that is uh, taken literally by the religious Jews, the Orthodox Jews. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 23, 5. They do all of their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their, here's the word, phylacteries. Phylacteries broad and their fringes long. The phylactery was a box that looked like something like this that was tied to, and you can see it on the foreheads of, those are not night vision goggles that they have on their heads. Those are phylacteries. Those are boxes. And inside that box is a tiny scroll containing the, some of the words of the law. And so they would put it on their heads. The men would do this. The women would do this. And that would be a, a way that they're literally living out Deuteronomy 6, 8, binding them on their hands and on their foreheads. You can see, uh, I guess, on the, the one man's wrist there, I think he has one on his hand. They would do the same thing. They wrap cords around and they would put it on their hand. And so they would do that there. And then he talks about in the next verse, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Here we see these. These are called mezuzahs. And you may have seen these if you've been to a Jewish home. You may have seen these on the doorpost of the home. Or you may have seen these if you've gone to a, a hotel in some places of the country. You may see these even there. Same thing. Inside that box is a copy of some portion of the Jewish law. Sometimes it's this passage that's inside that box. Why? Why do they do that? Don't worry, I'm not going to pass out boxes for your foreheads when you leave church today. Why do they do that, though? Well, they do that because this is what they see the Scripture commanding them. But it's meant to remind them of this passage. It's meant to remind them that the Word of God should be on our minds, the frontlets between the eyes. It needs to be saturating our thoughts. The Word of God needs to control our activities, the things that we do. That's why it's bound on the hand, what we do with our hands. The Word of God is influencing all of that. It's on our doorposts so that as we leave our house and as we walk into our house, we are reminded that we go with the Word of God and we come home with the word of God. And so these are visual reminders to them to say, man, I need to be saturating my life, saturating my house with the scriptures. Now, I think this has taken the word of God to a a point of of literal application that I think misses the, the point or risks missing the point because this is really about the metaphorical idea that it needs to be everywhere in our lives. 
The word needs to control our thought lives, saturate our thought lives. It needs to indicate and, and dictate the things that we do in our lives. And it needs to be something that we take with us and come back home to. This is a metaphorical expression of what it means for the word to be on our hearts, verse 6 in our passage, and in our mouths, verse 7. Our whole lives, that is, should be saturated by the scriptures. What we think about, meditate on, what we do. The world is ready with a fire hose, y'all, of immorality and idolatry to saturate our kids. And here's the thing. If we don't saturate our kids with scripture, the world will undoubtedly saturate them with worldliness. We need to make sure that they are so filled up with the truths about God that there's no room for anything from the world to get in. And that's what I think we're, we're dealing with in this passage. Our third and final point this morning is this. Saturate your kids with biblical truth. Saturate your kids with biblical truth. And again, I'm, uh, as I mentioned before, maybe you're sitting there going, well, I, I don't have kids at home. Your kids are, in part, those kids that are over there. Right? As we've been talking about the whole time this morning. And we, corporately as a church, want to saturate our kids with biblical truth. And yes, that starts mom and, ho- mom and dad at home. But we also want that to be a true here. And again, this is why we're teaching God's word over in our kids' ministry, why we're teaching God's word at the summer camps that we do, why we're teaching expositionally through the pages of scripture in our youth ministry as well, because we want to saturate their lives with biblical truth. I I made the mistake, I I worked at at Starbucks for six months um, while I was going to seminary, and uh, it was fine, I guess. Here's what I did not like. And you, you experience this even if you walk into Starbucks and walk out 10 minutes later after a meeting. And that is you smell like it, don't you? You know what I'm talking about? The, 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 the smell of coffee, but it's not a good smell of coffee. It's like the smell of just bad coffee that just sticks to your clothes. Well, when you work at Starbucks, it's that plus sour milk because you're steaming the milk and you're, when you're steaming the milk for the lattes and stuff, it splashes. And the apron is there, but the apron doesn't cover everything. And so you go home and you smell like old coffee and sour milk. So there it is. If you ever wanted a job at Starbucks, and those of you who work at Starbucks that are trying to, to defend them in your mind, don't defend them. You know it's true, too. In fact, my car started to smell like it eventually. That's what it is to be saturated by something. We want to not smell like bad coffee and sour milk. We want our kids to smell like the gospel. We want our kids to smell like Jesus to the world around them. This overlaps a little bit with point number two, but this is where I want us to start thinking outside the box a little bit. For your home, those of you with kids in the home, how can you make your place, your home, a place where biblical truth saturates your kids? How can you make your home a place that when your kids leave, the world is going to be able to tell, man, they love Jesus in that home? We've talked about some ideas, and and those are some of the more traditional ideas. But here's some other thoughts. What's on your TV? Maybe you think, well, my kids aren't really paying attention to what's on my TV. Eh, I, I would beg to differ. What words are they hearing on the TV? What images are they seeing on the TV? What's on the playlist? What's the music that you're listening to in the car? What's the music that's playing at home? What's the content of those songs? Man, if if I were to play the the theme song from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air right now, you'd all be singing along with it. You probably haven't heard it in decades, but you'd be singing along with it. Why? Because music sticks. What are you sticking in the lives of your kids with the music that you're listening to? Your playlist. What about the, the phone? 
What are the apps that are on the phone? What's the content on the phone? What are you teaching? What are you doing with that? I've already talked about this one, but let me come back to it. The calendar. What is your calendar teaching your kids about Jesus? Does your calendar show that you're saturating their lives with biblical truth? Back in California, I was a college pastor. And I would have meetings all the time with parents from time to time who were distraught about their, their, their kids having walked away from the church. And they would come to me and they would sit down with me and they would say, my, my kid's not, he's gone, he's in, in, in school and he's not going to church anymore. So one of the first questions that I would have for them was, what did church look like for you when they were in, in the home? What was your commitment to church like? What did you prioritize? Because if the church took a backseat to the tournament or to the team or to a late night the night before, then I'm not shocked at all that they've gone away and continued to give the church their leftovers. Let me talk to the parents in the room for a minute. What you are teaching your kids with your calendar will have a dramatic impact on how they follow Christ when they leave the home. And my question to you this morning is, what's going to matter 100 years from now? Them lettering in a varsity sport? Nobody puts that on their tombstone. And that doesn't show up at the Bema Seat of Christ. It's a war zone in the world. And it's getting worse and worse and worse every single day. We cannot put enough biblical truth in front of our kids. We cannot get to a place where we're saying they've got too much Bible. Because the world is dark And the light of the world is Jesus. And Jesus is found in the scriptures. Saturate our kids with biblical truth. Again, I can tell you as a dad that I'm immensely grateful for the church and the impact that the the community of believers has had on my kids' lives and I pray and I trust will continue to have on my kids' lives. Just like it wasn't nine guys on the field that won the World Series for the Rangers. It's not just a mom and a dad that are going to have the ultimate impact on the life of their kid. It's the church working together to do this. Will you stand with me as I pray for us? God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the church. We thank you for this family, this body of brothers and sisters that we get to do life with together. And God, it's a joy to know that, that we're not doing this alone. That it's not just us up against the world when it comes to these things, but it's us partnering with this family, with brothers and sisters and, and aunts and uncles, and, and, and we get to, to care together about the spiritual well-being of these young ones. God, create through this church, I pray, a, a legacy of, of faithful men and women who grow up here and choose to, to follow Christ with everything that they are. And we trust you for that process, God. 
but help us to be faithful in laying the groundwork for it. We thank you so much. We praise you for these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.